Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. I'm Alex Locke and I lead DAC Beechcroft's National Employment, Pensions and Immigration team. And in this episode, I'm talking to Georgina Rowley, a partner in our London team, and Rose Jakeman, an associate also in our London team. Morning, Alex. Happy to join you on this episode. Yes, hi, Alex. Thanks for having us on. Morning, both. Despite the progress made to date with the rollout of the vaccination programme to combat the coronavirus pandemic, businesses and government continue to count the economic cost of multiple lockdowns and the ongoing disruption to working lives. UK GDP was 25% lower during April 2020 than it was only two months before, and GDP in November was 9% lower than at the same time in 2019. In this law cast, we've chosen to look at redundancies and reorganisations as part of the legacy of COVID-19. Many businesses have had to cut costs and staff numbers just to survive, and others are looking afresh at how they operate given new ways of working. In this law cast, we'll look at three issues. When a redundancy is triggered, the practical impact of COVID-19 on the redundancy process and the legacy the pandemic may leave on the redundancy process for the future. Now, we're not going to take you through the law of redundancy today and we'll assume that you've got that knowledge. But that said, Georgina, can you tell us how a redundancy is triggered? Yeah, of course, Alex. So as you said, those GDP figures are pretty stark and it won't come as any surprise to anybody that because of the economic downturn, fewer people are are needed by businesses to carry out work. And that is one limb of the test. Uh, The second limb of the test in terms of the trigger for redundancy is fewer people being required to carry out particular work at a particular place. So there is that location nexus. So decisions to close an office, for example, to embrace home working or more agile ways of working can count, therefore, technically as a redundancy situation. Okay, we we covered home working and the impact of that in our last lawcast. But can you remind listeners about the position on office closures? Yeah, of course. So if an employer decides that working from home is going well and perhaps the costs of maintaining multiple offices are not sustainable, and increasingly we're seeing businesses moving either to full for home working or at least partial home working, then there is a workplace closure where that office closes and strictly speaking may well prompt a redundancy situation. The next question to ask is whether remote working constitutes suitable alternative employment. So this will need to be looked at on a case-by-case basis, given even if it's objectively suitable in the employer's eyes, it may not be subjectively suitable from the employee's perspective. So if it's not considered suitable, there will technically be a dismissal and the employee will be entitled to a redundancy payment. The other thing to have in mind is collective consultation, of course, which may be necessary if 20 or more employees in a single establishment change to remote working. And it's necessary in the background, perhaps, as your plan B, to dismiss and re-engage them to bring about this change of contract. It won't always be the case. It will depend on the usual factors within the organisation taking into account, which I think we're going to cover a little bit later in terms of considering thresholds for collective consultation. We will. Thanks for that, Georgina. Rose, if I can bring you in now, I know you and Georgina have been working on a number of these exercises for clients recently. 
Where have you seen the pandemic impact in practical terms? Well, we're seeing its impact in quite a few ways, actually, Alex. So firstly, from a technical angle, we're finding that clients are having to think differently about how they approach questions of location, both when they're assessing the scope of a redundancy proposal and also when they're considering suitable alternative employment. So firstly, listeners will know that whether or not collective consultation needs to take place will depend on how many employees an employer proposes to dismiss by reason of redundancy at one establishment within 90 days or fewer. And because of the new ways of working, what constitutes an establishment has become more of an issue following the pandemic. One example I'm thinking of is where a client extended a manager's reach to look after more than one store because they could do that from home. And that meant it was harder for the employer to argue that each store was a separate establishment and ultimately meant it more likely that the threshold for collective consultation was reached. And for the same reason, there's been quite a shift on what might be suitable alternative employment, with location becoming much less important. And that's something that employers will need to bear in mind going forward. And then I suppose from the more practical side, we're obviously seeing many clients carry out remote rather than in-person consultation exercises, whether that's individual or collective. And there's also been an impact on selection and particularly the scoring exercise, I think. Clients are finding that the scoring process is taking longer and they're also having to look more carefully at whether the data used to score individuals from the last year is reliable. I think we've also seen more negotiation over exit terms as people are more worried about picking up a new role in a sector that might be less buoyant. And that's perhaps also pushed employees to apply for roles that an employer might not previously have thought would be a suitable alternative for them. So it sounds like the pandemic has impacted lots of different stages of the redundancy process. And we're going to look at some of those in a bit more detail. We'll start with consultations as that begins the redundancy process. Georgina, what sort of practical issues have your clients faced when carrying out their consultations and how have they overcome these? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Alex. So dealing with a dispersed workforce with different tech access can be an issue in itself for some organisations. It's easy to forget, of course, that not everyone like us is in professional services and geared up to work from home via a Teams meeting on a, with a screen, particularly when there's demand in some households for homeschooling as well. So we've seen, in particular in the retail sector, clients struggling perhaps to have those conversations with individuals, although typically they've got around it by using phones and emphasising the need for confidentiality. Another aspect, I think, has been the potentially cumbersome nature of collective consultation in this pandemic environment, where clients are thinking, I think, much harder than they would have done previously about whether their preference is to avoid hitting the collective consultation trigger uh, and thinking more laterally and long term about staggering dismissals so that you've got clear water of at least 90 days between proposals. Again, that will be something which is predicated by how the business is doing and where it, whether it can bear the ongoing salary costs by waiting before revisiting workforce numbers. But certainly I've seen a, a growing trend to avoid consultation at almost quite high cost. 
A question which cropped up early on was in the in the initial days of furlough back in March, April last year, whether those people on furlough could be asked to attend consultation meetings. And we know the answer to that. So that's relatively easy. And that the answer is that they can. One theme I would say that's definitely emerging, though, Alex, is of employees looking understandably to maximise the period they're employed for. So I would definitely say that I've seen an increase in employee sick notes um, once a consultation has been announced, and obviously particularly the case where an employer has a generous sick pay policy. The tactics and answer here will vary a bit from employer to employer and also by employee situation, but it's, it's not dissimilar to the furlough question. Just because somebody is off sick doesn't mean that they can't attend a remote consultation meeting. But of course, it's a balancing act. And where sickness is genuinely incapacitating, which we are seeing instances of, delaying the meeting will, of course, be appropriate from a basic fairness perspective. More positively, I would say, and perhaps counterintuitively, I've seen employers go through individual, so non-collective consultations with more pace than I've seen previously. So providing the text there, I've seen HR teams have back-to-back employee consultation meetings through the course of the day, and they're getting through them much more quickly, for example, than they would be in an office environment. That's not saying they're taking shortcuts, they're not, but simply the, the way a day can be scheduled in this, in this time of working from home is very different to how we schedule today in the office. So so in some ways, there are kind of advantages for employers in making use of this in this virtual environment that we're all getting so used to. So what we're seeing is some of the more difficult things in a redundancy exercise are made more complicated by the pandemic, but there are some advantages as well. What I'm hearing from both of you is that planning these exercises is more crucial than ever, both in terms of the legal requirements but as importantly, the practicalities. Yeah, Alex, I think that's right. I think the devil is in the detail in terms of planning and there's no substitute for spending the time up front before you start the exercise and the momentum starts for getting those details right. Sure, always good advice. I'd like to come back to a couple of points that you made, Rose, about selection and also suitable alternative employment. Let's deal with selection first. Can you tell me what you're seeing there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing we're seeing is really around timing. And we're seeing, as I mentioned, employers requiring longer to carry out their selection and scoring processes. And I'd really suggest employers add about a week onto their usual timescales for these redundancy processes. It just seems to be taking a while longer when people can't sit down in a room together and maybe look at the scoring details uh, in paper or on a laptop and and discuss more easily. So that seems to have added a little time to the redundancy process. Then in terms of the scoring itself, as ever, any criteria will need to be capable of objective verification and then objectively applied to each individual. And COVID hasn't changed that, but I think appraising employees has become a lot harder in the last year, particularly for employees who have been furloughed for a large part of it. So if you're using performance as a measure, ensuring that you have reference periods that actually show what someone who's been furloughed is capable of, that's going to be really important. Of course, some of those who were furloughed may have been poorer performers. But that's not always the case. And some employers will be reverse engineering the selection process for furlough at this stage as they look to redundancies. 
I think another consideration is whether or not appraisals for the last year can be relied upon. So even for employees who have remained in work throughout the pandemic, they might have had further at-home responsibilities, maybe with childcare, perhaps their work and home care balance might have been different to usual. So is an appraisal for the last year really a good indicator of their achievements and their performance? And that's something that an employer will need to think about carefully. And then I think also another piece of the data is about absence. So do you take the view that everyone who was off with COVID or anyone who was self-isolating and perhaps couldn't work from home, should their absence for those periods be discounted? Now, obviously, employers can do that in the same way that they might discount for disability or maternity related absence. but They don't have to do so for COVID related absence. And of course, in order for them to apply that, an employer would need to have recorded the reason for the absence carefully, which may make this a non-starter in some situations. So again, it's just a bit more complicated in terms of looking at the data and applying your selection. And that's just adding to the time needed for the process, really, Alex. Okay. Now, the objectivity of the selection criteria and the veracity of the data sets used is often a battleground in redundancy cases when they go to tribunal. But it sounds like they've become more complex now and there's lots more for an employer to take account of both now and I think it's going to, to mean lessons for the future. Now, before we leave selection issues, Rose, are there any criteria you'd suggest to listeners which are untouched by what's happened in the past 10 months or so? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think there's likely to be a COVID impact to consider for most employers, to be honest, even where their businesses might not have been directly affected. I think the key point is really for employers to make selections on the basis of skills that can be evidenced and skills that the employer will need going forward. I think that's the takeaway really here. Yeah, and they're largely unchanged. Now, you also spoke about challenges in relation to suitable alternative employment. Georgina, if I can turn to you, is this something that you've seen as well? Yeah, it is. So understandably, we're seeing situations where employees want to stay in employment as long as possible because they perceive that the job market is is poor, perhaps less buoyant than it was. So what we're seeing is a trend towards employees who are at risk of redundancy applying for roles which on their face are not suitable. And of course, it's the case that the employer doesn't need to allow an employee to pursue a role that's wholly unsuitable. There are some traps to be aware of, though, but it, because it's not always on its face obvious that an employee might have the skills for a particular role if, for example, they had a previous career or a previous role which might lend itself to the role that they're applying for. I'd also say that I've seen a, a, a trend which is a little bit surprising of employees taking quite lower status jobs which are vacant, which in usual times they may have turned down but they, there is a real appetite to hang on to a role and any role in these circumstances. The other factor that I've seen in play is employers being a little more open to how they treat the notice period. For example, I've seen an employer being open to offering an employee whether they would like a garden leave notice period or whether they want to be piloned as they usually would. And actually, there's been quite an uptake in the option of garden leave, I assume on the basis that an employee regards their chances of securing new employment as better 
if they're in employment for a bit longer and on the employer's website and so on. So that that's definitely a, a trend that we're seeing. Sure. So it sounds like with a lot of uncertainty into the future, people would rather hang on to a job, even if it's not their preferred job. And clearly they're looking to stretch out their employment with garden leave rather than an early exit with a payment in lieu of notice. Now we're drawing our podcast to a close. But as we finish, it seems to me that in common with much of what we've learned from the pandemic, much of what we discussed in our last lawcast, employers are going to take the best bits of how they're having to deal with things now and hang on to them for the future. I can see that many clients won't be thinking twice about remote consultation meetings in the future, particularly where a face-to-face meeting might involve travel. Yeah, I like the way you're looking at silver linings, Alex, but I absolutely agree. My multinational clients will be doing a lot less traveling to carry out reorganizations once borders are opened up again, I think. And more generally, I think location will be less of a driver in these processes overall, which will leave a lasting impact on questions of what an establishment is, as if we needed more complexity there, as well as what suitable alternative employment looks like. So it sounds like the law is going to go through a process of being updated, at least in the tribunals, to take account of these different circumstances. Unfortunately, time's run out, despite there being plenty more that we could cover. In this podcast, we've looked at when a redundancy is triggered, the practical impact of COVID-19 on the redundancy process, and the legacy that the pandemic may leave on the redundancy process in the future just remains for me to say a big thank you to you Georgina and to you Rose for joining me on this episode. Pleasure thanks Alex it's been good to chat with you bye-bye. Yes thanks very much for hosting us Alex bye.